You're listening to a podcast by Change My Relationship, featuring licensed marriage and family therapist and author, Carla Downing. These podcasts are designed to provide you with practical solutions based on biblical truths for all your relationships. Today, Carla will be interviewing a guest who has experienced a relationship problem and successfully worked through it. Before I introduce our guest today, I just want to let you know that I have a brand new book. It's called Change My Relationship, 365 Daily Devotions for Christians in Difficult Relationships. I'm really excited. It's going to be an amazing resource. There was one similar to it that was the book that I read for about 20 years as I was trying to get healthy in my difficult relationships. And I'd always wanted to write a Christian version where you could have your scripture, your reading, and then a short prayer. It's topically indexed, which means you can read it one day at a time, like whatever that date is, or you can go to the back and look it up, whatever it is you're struggling with, and then read the devotions on that topic. You're going to love it. It's going to be a lifeline for you in whatever difficult relationships you are in. So it is available on my website, and after December 1st, it will be released, or I should say on December 1st, it will be released, and you can do pre-orders. Welcome back to Change My Relationship podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have on a good friend of mine who is going to tell you her story of battling the sexual addiction that her husband had in her marriage and just the ups and downs she went through and then how she eventually was able to find healing. So I'm going to welcome Heather Bennett Nunez. Hi, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here. Gosh, I just want to thank you for your ministry. It greatly helped me in my my time of need. And I'm so grateful for how you help other women struggling in their marriages. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. I do remember when you first came to my classes and the pain that you were in. And I know where you've come and where you are now and just the beautiful story. And I'm excited to have people to be able to hear it. So how did you first meet your husband? Well, we were both students at Chapman College, which is now Chapman University, and we were both communications majors with minors in public relations. And I was always drawn to him. He was very outgoing and gregarious and smart. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you started dating and got married quickly, or how did that go? So um, we only dated a little bit in college, um, very casually, but five years after um after college, we met at an alumni function. The alumni function included dinner and dancing, and Jeff and I danced and danced and danced, and I really enjoyed just being with him again. I was always drawn to his wit and his humor and his outgoing personality. And so you got married after that, and then what was the first thing that you noticed in your marriage that gave you an indication that there might be a problem? Well, I hate to say it, but the first thing that really made me sad is we didn't, we weren't intimate on our actual wedding night. And that was a really big deal to me. I didn't understand it at the time, but I knew on the wedding itself that my husband had actually drank way too much and literally passed out by the time we got to the hotel room. We weren't driving, but he passed out and we were together the next day, but it was deeply hurtful 
that my husband couldn't be with me on my wedding night. And even in those first months and couple years of marriage, I thought it was really odd that I was pursuing him more than he was pursuing me. It was much different than the stories I was getting from my girlfriends who were recently married. When did your kids come into your marriage? We got married when we were 29 and 28. And so I had my first son right before I turned 30. That was always kind of my agenda. I, I very much was on a plan that I would go ahead and get my degree. I would work for a while. I would be married for a year and get pregnant. And sure enough, after a year, I got pregnant with Ben. And so we had been married about two years when he was born. And then three years later, his sister, Serena, was born. And was your relationship healthy in terms of like communication, intimacy, and, re and relationship? It's a strange thing to reflect upon now, Carla, because at the time I thought it was good enough, right? But I understand now, looking back, it was good enough because I had come from my own family system where there wasn't a lot of good communication. I felt loved, but there wasn't a lot of like emotional language to help you identify feelings. There was a lot of invalidation of feelings uh, growing up because my mother had become an alcoholic. And so I was, wasn't really familiar with normal requirements for an, an, a close relationship. So I came into the marriage sort of with this distorted viewpoint about what relationships look like and what emotional connection really was. I felt like it was good enough, but what I'm saying now is I look at it and it was good enough from the framework of an adult child of dysfunction and alcoholism who really didn't have an appropriate lens on what solid relationship looks like. So you guys both just kind of did your roles to care of the kids, raise the kids. Intimacy was still not as much as you wanted, but it was still there. It was there. But, you know, young married people in their early, late 20s, early 30s, I thought I was reading stuff from Dr. Laura Schlesinger and I was yeah. trying to be a good wife. And, and my husband was climbing the corporate ladder. He had been an employee at Hughes and Hughes bought DirecTV. And then my husband became a senior VP over at DirecTV. So he was commuting an hour and a half each way. He was climbing the corporate ladder. So we became very traditional. You know, we went to church a lot as a family. You know, we both came back to Christ at like 30, 32. We're raising our kids in the church. Grateful to be back in the church. But it was very much segregated. He would be gone and off to work. And I would be home with the kids. And we would have date night on Saturday. And so it was this very specific, regulated sort of traditional role thing that happened. And I was okay with it because I really loved being a stay-at-home mom. When did you become aware that there might be something that had to do with pornography? Back in the olden days, I like to say when dinosaurs roamed the earth, <laughs> before we had the internet, there were 976 numbers. And so even when we had my first son, I was still working part-time for Johnson & Johnson. My vocational history is I was a professional salesperson, both for the Pepsi-Cola bottling company and for Johnson & Johnson. Back then, because we didn't have cell phones, you used your own personal phone to call clients. So I would go through the uh, very detailed the phone bill because I had to get reimbursement from Johnson & Johnson for my sales calls. And so I saw a number of 976 numbers, a bunch of numbers I couldn't identify that were on there late at night for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and a half. And when I called, 
it was very clear. The, it was like, hi, are you ready for a happy ending? I mean, it was, it was clear that it was a pornography line. And I just remember at that moment feeling completely shredded, just feeling like I'm here dying on the vine. I'm pursuing him all the time. I want connection. And he's giving, he's looking for it elsewhere and thinking, what's wrong with me? I'd done my very best to lose the, the baby weight. I think I still look really, really good. What's wrong with me? Why doesn't he want me? And so I confronted him with what I had seen um, on the bill statement. And he said, oh, well, you know what? Look at the, that, that night where I, it was because you went to that creative memory scrapbook party. I really needed you and you were gone. And so I just had to take care of it myself. And in my own internal dysfunction, in my own frame, I'm like, oh, you know, he's right. He's right. I wasn't there for him. You know, okay, I don't like it, but I understand his reasoning. And so it's this slow sort of warped process where you believe their perspective over your own perspective. And when you do that for a long period of time, it's hard to kind of be clear on what's real, what's real in this situation. I just felt really, really hurt and really unattractive that my husband was choosing that over being with me. Yeah, I think that's pretty common for women to reflect upon their own selves and think, okay, I must be doing something wrong. It isn't, it's because of me, especially when visual pornography is involved with the internet and yeah. they're looking at perfect women that very sexual, a lot of lust in what they're doing, and then they can't compete with that. So just tell me about the, the trajectory of the marriage then with the sexual addiction and how things progressed. Well, I would say any adult child of addiction, you know, alcoholics or dysfunctional family systems, we have a huge capacity for denial. Yes. And I like to consider myself a smart person. But when I look back at large chunks of the marriage where I felt like the marriage was okay, I think it was probably more okay because my denial was more intact for seasons and his ability to hide it was more intact for seasons. So I often say over my 24 year marriage, the first five to seven were okay. The middle seven were terrible. And then they got kind of got better for a couple of years and then they just cratered. So it wasn't like the whole entire 24 years was terrible, but in a way that was actually worse because it's sort of like going gambling in Vegas and you get this intermittent reinforcement. So you just think if I was a better wife, if the kids were quieter, if this is this, we can get back to that good spot. So I was always working really, really hard to get him and us back to that good spot because there were chunks in the marriage that felt good. But again, upon reflection, I think I was more in denial in those good spots and he was better at hiding it in those good spots. Mm -hmm. So did you continue to find evidence of sexual addiction? He actually got better with it. And I'm one of these people who's sort of phobic around technology. So when the internet, internet came around, I don't know when that was, 2000, 2001, something like that. He had both office computers and we had a computer at home. And I didn't touch it, I didn't go near it, but I was really confused on why our home email address was getting so much spam for pornography. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're constantly getting spam for pornography. And I would say to him, why is this happening? Jeff, I don't get this. I mean, he goes, oh, everybody gets it. It's all over the internet. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, everybody gets that. There's nothing you can do. And 
because I was not tech savvy and I never touched the computer. Okay, I guess everybody just gets loads of pornography sent into their email box. I accepted that as the truth. And it really wasn't until that horrific moment. And, you know, this is after years and years and years of feeling like, let's see, I want to ask my husband to be intimate with me. But by the look on his face, he'd rather take out the trash. I mean, really, that's what it got. I've started feeling like a complete chore. And I actually go back and look at myself as a young woman. I'm 57 now. As a woman of 35, 39, 42. And I was an attractive woman. And I was in a completely, I want practically a celibate marriage. Practically a celibate marriage. But yes, it did. Once the internet came and there was home computers and phones that could access the internet, the pornography just grew exponentially. But so did his ability to hide and cover it up and lie. You know, the internet pornography is like any other addiction. It kind of grows the more you feed it. Yes. And they get better and better about being defensive and covering up. And I hadn't even heard of gaslighting until I went to one of your classes and realized that, wow, you know what? I've been gaslighted for years. I don't even know up from down. And I'm a smart person. I don't even know up from down. I remember my brother, he's in the military, sat across from me one day when I was really unhappy in the marriage. And he said, Heather, what do you want? Right now, what do you want? And I said to him, I just want everyone to be okay. Because see, if everyone else is okay, then I'm okay, Carla. That was my frame of reference. If everyone else is okay, I'm okay. Now, I have compassion on that now, years later, 10 years since sure. my brother asked me that question. Because I understand that's how I stayed safe with an alcoholic mom. You know, I had to make sure my siblings were okay. I had to make sure mom was okay. So yeah, you know, it served a purpose as a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old. If mom's okay, then yes, we're literally safe. We're okay. But it was a dysfunctional pattern to bring in my marriage. A lot of bad things happened as a result. How was your faith interacting and intersecting with this during this time? Did you think about what God wanted or what the Bible said? And tell me about that. Yeah, I think that's the hardest part, Carla. I truly think that's the hardest part. So going to Chapman, I wasn't really a Christian then, even though I believed in God and my mom had sent me to Catholic church. Uh, But a dear friend of mine gave me my first Bible. And I had a conversion experience around age 21 in the parking lot of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa under um, Chuck Smith. Mm -hmm. And so I was very, very Christian in my heart. But when I met Jeff and we got married, he was sort of this backslidden Lutheran. So a friend of ours said, you need to go to premarital counseling. So we went to premarital counseling with an 85-year-old Lutheran pastor who basically said, Jeff, I know you're Lutheran and you're Christian. Heather, are you Christian? Yes, I'm Christian. Okay, then it'll all work out. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's all it takes. (laughs) that, That was the extent of our premarital counseling. I suggested, because my mom's heritage is Catholic, I suggested that we go to engagement encounter And actually, that was helpful because they asked you questions like, how many kids do you see each of you having? Um, Let's talk about the financial piece. Let's talk about giving up, you know, functions of the household, who's going to stay home, who's going to earn. So it was practical. It was practical. But none of that could have prepared me for the escalation of my husband's 
sexual addiction. That's really what it was. And I had no idea, Carla, call me naive. Now my non-Christian friends from Chapman, they would say, Heather, I don't know how you did that. How did you stay married for 24 years in a sexless marriage? Well, here's the answer. Number one, I focused on my kids. You know, I was a stay-at-home mom. I focused on my kids. When my kids got to be in high school, I went back to grad school. So I, I, I found other ways to grow myself and other ways to get my needs for connection. But there was a time when my kids were in third and sixth grade where I thought to myself, you know, if things don't get better, there's going to be nothing left of our relationship by the time these kids get out of school. He and I are really, really disconnected. But I didn't understand the level um, that the addiction had taken over in his life and all the secrets. He had a lot of secrets that he was holding around, basically running a double life. We were at church and he was on the elder board. I was in women's ministry. I was attending Bible study fellowship. And the stronger I got in my faith, two things happened. Number one, I don't ever regret growing stronger in my faith and studying the Bible for six years at Bible study fellowship. But for me and my life experience growing up, sort of this codependent idea and my Christianity started to co-mingle. And I would say things to myself like, well, we don't have a physical connection, but we have a spiritual connection. Well, he works all the time and provides for us. My needs for that kind of intimacy, I can just put them aside. Well, you can't beg for what somebody can't deliver. And so I started to just view him as incapacitated in a wheelchair. And we were just going to raise our family in a relationship where there's very little sexual intimacy. I discounted and denied those things, thinking, well, gosh, Christ suffered on the cross. I can give up my sexuality. Clearly, just not interested in sex. And of course, it wasn't until months and years later that I saw he was really interested in sex, just not sex with me, sex with himself, he, you know, masturbating to pornography constantly. There was no sexual energy left to actually engage with his wife, a real person, because mo all his sexual energy was going to pornography. And the irony is because he was in uh, upper management, the irony is he saw people losing their jobs who were using, who did internet porn, he saw what was happening to people. But that doesn't matter once you're engulfed in, in that kind of addiction. It's that compulsion and obsession that grows and grows and the tolerance increases and they need more and more. And it's really common and we're, we're going to have you back on later as an expert, which people understand why shortly, uh, to talk about the whole dynamics of sexual addiction. But what you're describing in your relationship and the way that it goes is actually pretty common. Yeah, I mean, of course, a stay-at-home mom who's going to Bible study fellowship and is a soccer mom, you don't know these things. You don't think about these things. There's a whole world out there that your eyes can and your mind can't even conceive of. But the quandary for me became the fact that I wasn't happy in the marriage. I felt disconnected. I felt devalued. I felt unloved. And all of my bids for attention, all my bids for love were denied or minimized or mocked. And so I just stopped asking. And we started living together as roommates. Friendly roommates, our household ran fine, or seemed like our kids were doing fine. More on that later. 
So I just thought, you know what? Christ suffered for me. I'm going to put aside my needs. My needs are important. And I'm just going to raise this, these kids. That's okay. Because look at what Christ did for me. I think also, Carla, what was so hard is I really wanted the marriage to work. I really did love him. I really saw the good that was there. I wanted to raise my kids in an intact family system. I wanted that for them. I wanted Jeff to get back to who he was before he became this workaholic. I thought it was just working all the time and sometimes being depressed. I figured he has no energy for me. The guy commutes to El Segundo from La Habra Heights and he has no energy. And I'm lucky I get one two hour cordial date with him on a Saturday night because he gives everything at the office and nothing for me. Now my non-Christian friends from Chapman, they would say to me, you've got to be having an affair, Heather. I mean, you haven't had sex now in six months. You've got, you've got to be having an affair. And I would say, I would go to my friend, our friends, I would say, that's just not in me. It's not who I am. I would never have it. I wouldn't even conceive of having an affair. You know, they're like, well, you have needs and you're a beautiful woman and you're only, you know, 40 years old and you could pass for 30, 32 or something. You know, why don't you blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I would, that goes against everything that I am. And I said, I made a promise not only to Jeff, to be, to, ha- to honor him and have fidelity, but I made a promise to God. So as things got worse, that was my sort of stuck point that now it wasn't even about Jeff anymore. It was, I don't want to let God down. I promised to all of our friends and family, and I promised God that I would love this man until death did us part. I made a promise. And you know what? Maybe he's not the best husband, but until God tells me different, there's no adultery. I've asked him a bunch of times. I've asked him a million times. And he would honestly just say, no, I masturbate to porn. But when it got further along, I, I masturbate, but I, I never have had, I've never you know, done anything else. My, I'm like, I don't have a way of getting out of this. I don't have biblical grounds for divorce. So my needs don't matter. Doesn't matter that we're roommates. You know, I'm going to raise this family. It will be what it'll be because I'm not going to disappoint God. Right. So what happened that escalated? A couple of things. We had moved our family out of state uh, to Oregon. In my mind's eye, I was doing one of those things where I thought, well, if work is the problem, because that's how I conceptualized it, compulsive working, and we're disconnected found, foundationally because he works too much and then gets overwhelmed and depressed and then seeks out coping from porn. I'm like, let's get, he got a huge compensation package to, from DirecTV when AT&T and Rupert Murdoch bought out the company. So he got this big package. And honestly, if he had done nothing, he could have retired right then at age 50. He could have retired with the amount of money he got. But we moved out of state. And I did that because I thought if we're in this small agricultural town in Oregon, we'll be together, we'll make s'mores, we'll make homemade bread, we'll play in the snow. And my dream will come true that we'll be a close and connected husband and wife and little family. So it's a common mistake. You know, they say wherever you go, there you are. Yep. But I had defined the problem as uh, out of control work-life imbalance. And so in my mind's eye, that was a great way to solve the problem. And so that's what we did. Now, needless to say, that's when, unbeknownst to me, 
the pornography was continuing to escalate by now, but by now we had a separate office room and he would just escape into it for hours doing work. And I wanted to believe that he was doing work. So yeah, it got much worse after that when we came back to California after a failed business venture where we lost two homes, all the money he had made for five years. At, he, it was catastrophic, the financial ruin we were in. But again, I'm an honest and faithful wife. So I don't, I don't leave my husband when we're bankrupt, when we're poor, when our house is being foreclosed on, because I'm an honest and faithful wife. But at that point, I thought his drinking had become really, really bad. My son was not doing good with the transition back to California after living in the state of Oregon. And we sent my son to a therapist. The therapist pulled me aside and said, the problem here isn't your son. The problem is your husband and how he treats your son. And he's got a drinking problem. So we actually did an intervention on my husband. And he went into a 30-day intensive outpatient program for alcoholism. After working with a sponsor for multiple months, I stumbled upon his workbook. He was working with, with his sponsor. And that's where I saw the words written. It's a page on your kind of your sins or, and the things you need to make amends for. There was a lot of anger and a lot of resentment poured out on those pages against me like I was his problem. But he said in his own handwriting, I have had years of anonymous sexual relationships with other people risking my life and Heather's. Wow. What a shock. It was. It was a punch to the gut that he had had years of anonymous sexual relationships with others risking his life and mine. I might've even called you Carla right after seeing that. I think I did. Yeah. I remember. (laughs) Yeah. That's when you were in my class. So obviously you came to my class for women in difficult marriages that I taught at the church and yes. you came in in pain. So even before you had this disclosure yes. admitted to yourself that you were in a, a painful, difficult marriage and you wanted change. And yes. then during that class is when you discovered that. Right. Yes. Right. So continue. There's more to the story. There's always a feeling of relief when what you suspect, what a part of your brain, what a part of your heart has always known as truth. When you get confirmation that you're not crazy, it's a huge relief. So it's this mixture of relief, like I'm not crazy. This has actually been happening. Then it's grief, like I would never even, I I don't even have it in me to be unfaithful. It's grief. And then it's anger. How dare, how dare you do this? How dare you do this to me? Oh, and then it's acute grief when the next week I have to go into my gynecologist's office in Fullerton tell her what's going on and get, and get tested for every STD known to man, including HIV. Okay. Every, every herpes test, every, every test you can think of when all I've done for 24 years is sacrificially love a difficult person. Exactly. And gone without sex (laughs) makes it worse. That's like, that's the uh, ultimate irony in that though. <laughs> yeah, it's super ironic. I, you know, I've done nothing to bring this upon myself. No. And the betrayal you feel, it's so intense. The betrayal, the hurt, the sadness. And now what? I'm almost 50. 
I haven't worked in 20 years. Yes, I had gone back to school and I was working on the next level of my career, but I had not generated income in years and years and years. And I was terrified. Oh, how, how, how am I even going to do this? And my daughter's still 16. So then I think I said something to you, Carla, like, I'll just tough it out till she graduates from high school. Yes, she uh, did. Uh, uh, and my uh, response was not a good idea <laughs> i said talk to me when the anger hits yes yes <laughs> anger is a gift the anger is a gift because then you start uh realizing your worth then you want to then you have energy to do something but that for me came after a lot of grief and a lot of mourning and a lot of sadness and a lot of fear, a lot of fear when, you know, I figured all this out right before I turned 50, I had spent half my life and most of my adult life with my husband. Right. Then you found out more that made it even worse. Yes. Are you willing to disclose that? Sure. I had suspected this because a lot of people had, would ask me, isn't Jeff gay? Like, why did you guys get married? Isn't he gay? And he would oftentimes tell me how hurtful that was, how painful it was. Why would anyone think that? Do you remember the term metrosexual that was around in the 90s? Oh, yeah. That's kind of how he defined himself. Like this tailored guy in the best outfit and cologne from Nordstrom. He was like a metrosexual. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, we've had sex. I know he's capable of it. And wouldn't a gay person actually just be with a gay person? So we've had sex. We've had kids. How can he possibly be gay? But when we were in Oregon, one day I had to go in there and do some research for homework for my grad school. I clicked on something in the history and it was graphic imagery of two men having intercourse. And I thought literally that I was going to throw up. It was like an out of body experience where I could see myself watching my horrific look on the computer and the image was just seared in my brain and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with it. It was like that worst fear in the back of your mind that you never wanted to think. Here he was looking at it. My kids were in school. I got into my car and I just drove around aimlessly in this agricultural town for like two hours, like an out-of-body experience. And then I got on the phone and called Focus on the Family and tried to find a counselor that would have any guidance for me in this area. That's a whole other story because there's a lot of people, even back way back when, 5, 10, 15 years ago, nobody knew what this stuff was and nobody knew how to address it. They didn't know how to address it at all. And so I got a lot of well-meaning but not helpful advice. The pain that you went through was phenomenal. What yes. ended up bringing you to the point of deciding that you were going to get a divorce? Unfortunately, it wasn't even though I had now confirmation of both the um, problem with drinking, well, actually multiple problem with drinking, uh, problem with internet pornography, and now gay pornography. So all that wasn't enough. When I finally did get the confirmation that he was having sex outside of marriage, that's when I finally got my act together and decided that I, would, I needed an attorney and I needed to create a plan for what my next step was. 
And um, I was lucky in the sense that his parents would typically give us a cash gift every Christmas in each of our names. And for 20 years, I'd always just handed my check over to Jeff. But this year, that year was the first year I actually deposited it in my account and took that money to get myself a divorce attorney and started creating my plan to leave. Right. Which your daughter was still in high school, which you didn't really want to do. I didn't want to do. I wanted to keep it together, roommate-like, friendly-like, as long as possible. But it, the, it was just the tension in the house, yeah. the dysfunction, the escalation. Um, it was my first time ever feeling sort of the electrical charge in the air that happens in domestic violence. He never actually hit me, but there were a couple of times when I would open up a bill and ask why it hadn't been paid. Or one time I got our bank account and it showed $500 a week being taken out just as cash. And I said to him, that's $2,000. What did you do with $2,000? And he was enraged. He threw the papers at me and he said, it went to Albertsons. I said, no, it did not. I do the grocery shopping. Even if he wasn't drinking, he still was engaged in this double life, sneaky kind of behavior. When I called him out on it, that's when I would get all of that anger and reactivity. And that actually, at that point, my daughter didn't see that, but she saw enough going on that she came to me as a 16-year-old, a sophomore in high school and said, you can't be here anymore, mom. It's too hard on you. It's too hard on dad. It's too hard on me. You can't be here. She went to go visit friends for spring break. And I went to go see my cousin. And I was packing up a bag and a little voice said in the back of my head, you might not come back. And I literally didn't come back. I mean, I only had a small bag. I went to my cousin's, but I never came back. Well, sometimes that's what it takes because it's too hard to do all of the preparation that you would have to do. You've just almost got to run whatever works, whatever right. it takes. So you went through the divorce and what was the process that you went through in terms of adjusting, healing, grieving? Well, there's a lot of grief involved. And when you are raised with alcoholics, this is a Heather term, it's not politically correct. You become kind of emotionally retarded. You don't know how to feel your feelings. You don't know how to identify feelings, all of that. So I was actually in your class with a classmate who is running our group. Her name was Lori. She was just a really Holy Spirit-filled gal and she said to me, Heather, the Lord gave me a vision for you last night, and I want to share it with you. This is when we were in private after class. And I said, what, what, what is it? He gave me a vision of you as a small infant. And you're, you're kind of in one of those burrito wraps. You know how you tightly wrap a small infant? And he's holding you close to his heart. And he's saying, dear one, when you're ready, you're going to cry tears. And they're, they're, it's going to be like a river that fills the ocean but I am here and I'm holding you as you cry a river wow. of tears. That's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? And she said, there was, she said there was a violin playing in the background. And literally that was so comforting that God gave her that image. I held it in my heart and I went home that night, Jeff in one room, me in another room across the way. I put on violin music. I laid in bed and I cried, imagining Christ holding me and walking me through the pain which he does for all of us, even if a friend of ours doesn't have a vision. That is the way yes. scripture describes him. Yes. Absolutely. But it, was very, it was very, very comforting to me. But you, I had, 
but I was scared, Carla. I was, I'm like, the ha- we had lost the house and his, we were still in the house, but his parents bought it. So I didn't have legal claim to a house. I didn't have a source of income. I knew I was on a track to um, get income in the future, but I wasn't there yet. Um, I had periods of time where I would pawn jewelry for a tank of gas. I pawned jewelry to get my daughter an outfit for prom. Um, I really didn't know how I was going to do it, but I felt once I had that proof, I, I could really see my husband for the chaotic, unsafe person he was, and I had to get out. Mm-hmm. Which I is just, the right thing at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. just too much, too much to sacrifice. There's a point where it becomes so toxic and unhealthy. So you went through years of just coming to terms with all this from that person who was still invalidated, questioning, kind of not sure, and then you have become completely different person. Tell us about that. You know what, Carla, I like to think that I'm the person that God always intended me to be. Yes. I just, and I feel like I just got lost for a while and I got lost and I have, because of these default operating patterns that I had operating from childhood that I had a little girl part of me that said I couldn't save mommy from alcoholism, but I'm going to save Jeff from himself. You know, I had unfinished business that I thought I had worked through that was still there, not serving me. To where you are now, you have just become, you're so healthy, you're so healed, you're remarried to a beautiful man that God brought into your life and just enjoying the marriage that you always should have had, which is always awesome for me to see. I absolutely love seeing that in women when I see them go through all that, you know, pain and and then they come out on that other end. I know you're just very healthy. I very much think that I'm now back to who I was. I'm back to Heather. I feel like I got lost along the way. I got lost for a couple different reasons. I have a heart of compassion for others. I know how to sacrificially love those are good things, but when you're with somebody who is abusive or addicted, um, those good things become your worst enemy because you lose your sight of your own worth and your own value and trying to make them okay. I was very lucky in that when we moved back here from Oregon, I reconnected with my college roommates. I had always stayed a little bit more connected, but but they actually called me back to the woman I was before I got married. They, when I would come in and say, Jeff, Jeff said I was selfish. Jeff said this. They would laugh. They're, they're like, that is the most ridiculous thing. I, I, that's ridiculous. Sometimes you need an outsider yes. to see things that others can see so clearly. But when you're in it and you have so much invested and you want so desperately to do the right thing for everyone and do the right thing according to the Lord, you get really lost in terms of what your perspective is. And so those women drew me back to the person I was before I got entangled in a dysfunctional marriage. And then the women from your group helped me know that I could be a Christian woman and still let go of somebody that was not a safe person, very chaotic and very damaging. Yeah, and that God did not want you to be tolerating that and going through that. And that is not what scripture tells us that we have to do. You come out on the other side, you've got peace, you've got confidence, 
you've got your career going, you're now licensed marriage family therapist, and you're actually a very good marriage family therapist. I refer lots of people to, so I'm really proud of all of the things that you've done just to come out. And then the most exciting thing is you've just recently gotten remarried to a fantastic Christian man who yes. is just giving you everything that you didn't get before your buddies on every single level. <laughs> You're both nerds about Star Wars. You both like to talk about psychology. Yes. And I mean, what better fit could it possibly have been? So yeah, like when I when I share my story in, in other venues and professional venues, it's a story of redemption. Because God has truly given me back the years the locust took. I have a life that I could not even have dreamed of. It is so exceedingly beyond anything I could have dreamed of. But I didn't know that when I was stepping off the precipice into complete fear seven years ago. I had no idea when I stepped out. I was, I was trembling. I, I, I was decimated. I was just a big mess. And I had to go through this huge process to get to the other end where I would be healthy enough to know my worth, to find eyes that could see a good man and connect in that way. I had to also work on all that earlier dysfunction that allowed me to tolerate what was going on in the marriage for so long. Exactly. And I got to watch all of it. And it's amazing. And it's possible. And I, you're not the only one that I've seen go through that transformation because there is healing from being in a difficult relationship. I mean, there are also things you can do in it if you stay and it's not yes. so toxic that it is completely destroying you. But yes, you've come through that place. So, wow, it's been very, very good. I, I know people are going to be blessed and I'm going to have you back on because you've actually specialized in dealing with women who are in relationship to sexual addicts. And I think there's a lot of professional information you can give us. So we'll do that. So thank you for coming on sure. today. My pleasure, Carla. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So thank you for listening to this podcast. And I hope to have you come back to the next one. Okay, God bless. Thank you for listening to this interview on Change My Relationship. We hope you will subscribe to these podcasts and share them with your friends. Carla would love to hear from you. She welcomes ideas for future podcasts as well as your feedback on how the podcasts have helped your life and relationships. You can email her at carla at changemyrelationship.com. For more information on Change My Relationship and Carla Downing's ministry, including her books, studies, devotionals, podcasts, and YouTube videos, visit changemyrelationship.com.